Hello, church family. Pastor Dan here. You probably noticed that Lori and I are not with you all in the service today. And that's because tomorrow is our 24th wedding anniversary. Yesterday, we left Tampa and traveled to St. Louis, where we are going to be spending the rest of the week, not only there, but in Branson, Missouri, as we just relax and rest and uh, just take a few days off to do nothing. So we've been looking forward to this as well uh, as we just celebrate what God has done in our marriage over the last 24 years. What a blessing it is to be married to such a godly woman uh, like Lori. She is a gift to me and a treasure. And so we, I look forward to spending these next few days with her. But today, you all are in for a special treat. Randall Miller will be preaching the Word of God. Many of you already know Randall. As he goes around the church every Sunday, comes up to you and says, Happy Lord's Day, and uh, genuinely cares for you all and prays for you and is moved with emotion over the church family that God has brought him and his wife Pauline to become a part of. He loves you all. He cares for you all. And God has gifted and called him to preach. And uh, he's been an elder before in another church. And uh, I know he will be a blessing for you all today as he comes to preach the word of God. Next Sunday, we will be back, Lord willing, and I will continue my series in 1 Corinthians. So if you are brand new to Northwest Baptist Church, if this is your first time here, sorry I missed you. You will be blessed by Randall Miller today, and I will see you next Sunday, Lord willing. God bless you, and we'll see you soon. <clears throat> well, okay. It's good to see you all here today on this Lord's Day. What a privilege it is that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ in peace and harmony, and we should all be thankful for such a wonderful church family that we have here today. Now, as we heard, Pastor Dan won't be here, so you're stuck with me. Um, I want to start off with a story. Um, Victor Hugo, a French poet and novelist, I'm sure you all probably remember his masterpieces that include Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was a great procrastinator. He put off writing, writing to go out socializing, if you understand what I'm talking about. He enjoyed socializing more than he enjoyed writing. His editor-in-chief threatened to cut off his funding if he did not finish the book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, on time. So Victor came up with a very unique method to prevent his procrastination. He had his servants strip him of his outside clothes and leave him in his underwear so he could not leave the house and go out socializing. He also had them lock him in a room for an appointed hour so that he may write uninterrupted for a prescribed amount of time. Oddly enough, he did finish his book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, on time. And as a side note, in that book, he did mention the corruption of the church in Paris during that time period. Do you procrastinate? Do we... Do we all hesitate to share Jesus with people? 
Are you afraid to stand up for the truth and share the gospel? I know sometimes I have a tendency to procrastinate when it comes to sharing God's word. And I don't know why, except we, we might be afraid of mockery or criticism or pushback. But we don't need to be afraid because we have the Holy Spirit. He's within us and he's with us always. Today, we're going back into the book of Acts. And I know Pastor Dan took you all through the book of Acts a little while ago. If you remember, chapter 1 gives us a basic understanding of the Christian life. It is in Acts that the church was founded, so it's very important at the beginning of the book of Acts to outline what the church is supposed to do and how to do it. For some of you, this may simply be a good review. For others, it may be brand new. Still, we must remember the book of Acts has important instructions for us as we strive to live a Christian life. So let's open our Bibles if, or your cell phone or whatever you use, and let's look at Acts chapter 1, Verses 6 through 11. Okay, so verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come, comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostles did not yet fully understand. We see that in verse 6 they said, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they still thought Jesus was going to restore Israel to a powerful, earthly, Jewish kingdom, just like King David's kingdom. The question shows us that they didn't completely understand the full scope of the gospel. It shows their complete lack of understanding. How many times had Jesus said to them, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not here to overthrow the government, guys. They failed to understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom and could not see past Israel. Even though Christ had told them about his new kingdom, he had told them that the preaching of the gospel would reach the world and many tongues and many nations, not just Israel. 
in the coming New Testament era, Christ would rule in the hearts of the believers in every aspect of their lives. If he came to just restore the kingdom to Israel, that would be like taking a step backwards. Christ came to earth not just for the Jews and the nation of Israel, but also for the Gentiles to create a new kingdom, a true kingdom meant for every believer in the coming age. It was to be a heavenly kingdom in the hearts and minds and deeds of men as they were transformed transformed by the power of the gospel. Jesus then answers their question in verse 7 and tells them, there will be no date setting about the day of the Lord. It is not to be that kind of thing. Establishing his kingdom would take time, time in which the disciples and many others who served the Lord would spread the gospel. Also, knowing the date wouldn't have helped them much anyway, especially if they'd have known it was thousands of years in the future. For now, the disciples needed to focus on their commission. And if you remember, Jesus had told his disciples that clearly the date of the second coming was hidden in the secret will of God the Father who foreordained all that comes to pass. Only God the Father knows. Mark 13, 32 and 33 is worded almost exactly like Matthew 24. Let's, let's look at Mark 13, 32 and 33 together. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the fa- only the Father. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. No one knows, not even the Son. Even Jesus doesn't know the day. Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when time will come. Be ready. Be ready. But don't waste time trying to anticipate when the end will come. Do your job today. What Jesus was trying to tell them in verse 7 and verse 8 was this would be the disciples' time. This would be their time. A time of witnessing for the gospel. Also, this time, the scope of their witness was not just Israel, but the world. Verse 8 kind of sums up the whole book of Acts. It begins with the, the Holy Spirit's power that drives the witness for Christ. Then it proceeds to provide a rough outline for the book from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The statement, you will receive power, means only the Holy Spirit would be at work. That means the Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives of these ordinary, ordinary men. If you remember, a couple of fishermen and a tax collector. Matthew might have known how to count and write so he could keep records, but he was no scholar or theologian. They were ordinary men. And if God can use those ordinary men, he can certainly use us. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost brought about many beneficial results. Most of all, 
effectiveness in witnessing and ministry while proclaiming the gospel, power over sin and Satan and demonic forces. Also, it brought about a wide distribution of gifts. We can now understand that the word power meant the power to preach the gospel effectively. The power to work miracles, thus confirming the message that they were preaching. This power came to them through the Holy Spirit. The disciples would be well equipped for the task. They would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The implication is that once the Holy Spirit came upon the church, he would always remain to empower the true New Testament church. The church would never be left alone to act on her own strengths. She would always be able to follow the clear leading and working of the Holy Spirit. Also, we see in verse 8 the words, You will be my witnesses. We are all to be witnesses for Christ, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, powered by the Holy Spirit. This is not to be a political movement in Israel. This is to be an evangelical movement to the world. This would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In Acts 13, 47, Paul quotes Isaiah when he is speaking to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, we have a lot of work to do, don't we, beloved? You know, Calvin said we must fight before we can hope to triumph. Witnessing for Christ is costly and sacrificial. And let me explain. You see, in verse 8, the word witness, witnesses, in the Greek, the word witness is martor, M-A-R-T-U-R. It is the root origin of the English word martyr. Now, all 12 disciples except John were martyred. John was the only one who died of natural causes. He was banished by the Roman emperor to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. My point I'm trying to make is, if we witness for Christ, we may be mocked. We may be criticized. We may be called foolish and stupid. We may even be martyred for the cause. Doing God's work and living a Christian life is not supposed to be easy. Look at what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. If they persecuted the Son of God, what do you think they're going to do to you? The good news is what is waiting for us. Those words from the Father, well done, good and faithful servant, and God's eternal kingdom. There are also geological references in verse 8. We see the words uh, from Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thomas went to India and China. Andrew traveled to Russia, Turkey, and Greece. Philip went to North Africa and Asia Minor. 
Peter to Palestine in Asia Minor. James, the son of Zebedee, proceeded to Spain. John went to the church in Ephesus that was founded by Paul and then the Isle of Patmos. Bartholomew journeying to Ethiopia, Iran, Turkey, and Armenia. Matthew went to Judea, Ethiopia, and Persia. James the Lesser traveled to Spain and then back to Jerusalem. Thaddeus, he traveled the farthest. Thaddeus went to Judea and Samaria, southwest Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Libya with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot went to Egypt and then joined Thaddeus. And what about Matthias? Matthias, the replacement apostle. Matthias ventured into the interior of Ethiopia. Frank Lloyd Wright, switching gears, Frank Lloyd Wright, the famous American architect, was once commissioned by a wealthy Pittsburgh businessman, Edgar Kaufman Sr. He was to create Falling Water, a beautiful house in rural Pennsylvania in 1934. After visiting the site, he, he told Kaufman he'd been working on plans. He hadn't been. He was procrastinating. Actually, he hadn't drawn anything at all. So imagine his surprise when Kaufman called him early one morning and said, I'll be up there before noon to look at what you've drawn. And Frank, Mr. Wright, frantically drew up plans in time it took Kaufman to drive up from Pittsburgh. He barely finished in time. And when Kaufman arrived, he was impressed with what he saw. And Falling Water is now, a listed, as not, is now listed as a National Historic Landmark. Frank Lloyd Wright designed his most famous house at the age of 67 in two hours. He procrastinated, but he got lucky this time. Has your procrastination ever paid off as well as his? I know mine never has. Well, let me tell you something. We can't procrastinate with the commission that's been given to us. Did Christ procrastinate after his resurrection? What if Christ had hid for 40 days? However, Christ did not hide after his resurrection. He made several appearances after that. They were deliberate and purposeful visits. Here at what would later be called the Ascension was to be his final appearance to the disciples. It marks the end of his 40 days with the disciples. Pentecost would follow 10 days later. Jesus therefore departed in such a manner to convey finality, even though it was not a permanent goodbye. In verses 9 through 11... We see that as Jesus was talking to them, he started to rise up and a cloud took him away. The disciples stood there looking into heaven. Two messengers from heaven appeared to tell them that Jesus would return from heaven in the same manner that he just departed. 
What is most striking here is the initial question of these angels. It sounds as if they're chiding or scolding these men a little bit for being amazed at what just happened. Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? Hardly seems a fair question. I mean, after all, if the pastor of a church rose through the ceiling at the end of a sermon, we would all be inclined to look up in amazement, wouldn't we? I know I would. What just happened? Where'd he go? What then is the importance of that question? The importance of that question seems to be the application of the ascension itself. Christ ascended into heaven, and the message would be, time to go to work. After all, the disciples had been confirmed with her about their calling to be Christ's witnesses. They needed to go to work now. Christ's departure into heaven signals the start of their great commission to preach the gospel throughout the world. So why are we standing here gawking, guys? Why are we standing here looking up in amazement? Let's get it into gear and get to work. The angel's question and statement prompts the disciples to start the work that the Lord gave them. Stop looking up into heaven. It's inappropriate. He will come again the same way that he left. It will be a worldwide huge event. No one will miss it. So being assured of that fact, don't spend your time looking up into heaven. Don't spend your life worrying about when the end will come. Set your eyes upon the work that he has given you to do. This challenge should be as fresh to us today as when it was first uttered. Yet often we see modern Christians looking skyward. Sky-watching for the second coming seems to be rampant among Christians today. Have you heard what's happened in the Middle East? It's a sure sign of the end times. This weather never used to be this bad. I can't believe this weather. The end's coming soon, I'm sure of it. Even though Jesus has expressly forbidden us to speculate, look at all the false prophets that have littered our past. All this brings disgrace to the gospel. The Christians that gaze ever skyward for fresher insights to the second coming, they disgrace the gospel. While they're doing that, the world perishes for the lack of a real Christian witness. Come on, people. We all know we're living in the end times. We've been living in the end times since the first century, since Christ departed. Let's stop watching for signs and get to work and do our jobs. The point I'm trying to make is that we don't need to actively be looking for signs of the end times. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a reality now. We are all supposed to be witnesses for Christ. Let's stop procrastinating and get to work. Let's work together to spread the gospel. We are all one body, one church, God's church, Christ's church. And I think Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. 
Jews, Greeks, slave, free, and all were made to drink one spirit, one spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us now. He will be with us no matter what we do. He will guide us daily to be witnesses for Christ. There's no reason to procrastinate. There is nothing to fear. Let's get to work. Are you ready to be a witness for Christ? Have you confirmed your calling to be a witness for Christ? Are you ready to spread the gospel? One more story. Leonardo da Vinci is known today as a genius of the Italian Renaissance. However, during his lifetime, he had a reputation as a procrastinator. Yep, he was a procrastinator and a daydreamer. He hardly finished anything. It is said that he was a man of incredible talent. He was talented in both the arts and sciences. He contributed to engineering, architecture, math, and physics. He sculpted and painted both portraits and murals. He made plans for ingenious machines that would never be built in his lifetime, planes and helicopters and submarines. He never finished a project on time. He was a procrastinator. He was easily distracted. His talents and energies were often wasted on doodles and unfinished projects. It took him 16 years to complete his most famous work, the Mona Lisa. 16 years on one painting. Leonardo said in his later years as he lay dying that he regretted, quote, never having completed a single work. He appealed to God. He said, tell me if anything ever was done. Tell me if I ever completed anything. When he died in France in 1519, he left numerous sketches of unfinished projects. Why do we procrastinate? Is it human nature? Are we afraid of the unknown? Or are we afraid of failure? We know it has to be done, loved ones. Why are we wasting time? Christ gave us our commission when he gave the apostles their commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Behold, he is with us always until the end of the age. How far is the end of the age? It's forever. He is with us forever. Can you wrap your minds around that? I have a hard time with eternity and forever. I want to know when forever began and when forever ended. But it isn't. Forever was always and it always will be. How has God always been and always will be? I don't know, but the word says he he is, and he will be with us. We have to trust the word because our human minds can't wrap ourselves around that. Jesus gave us this commission to the apostles shortly after he ascended into heaven, and it essentially outlines 
what Jesus expects the disciples to do and those who follow him to do in Christ's absence. It's very interesting to me because I love the Greek. The only direct command in this verse is make disciples. The Great Commission instructs us to make disciples while we're going throughout the world. The instructions to go and baptize and teach are indirect commands. How are we to make disciples? By baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has commanded us to do. Make disciples is a primary command of the Great Commission. Going and baptizing and teaching are the means by which we are to fulfill the command, make disciples. A disciple is someone who receives instructions from another person. A Christian disciple is a baptized follower of Christ, one who believes in the teachings of Christ. A disciple of Christ imitates Jesus' example, clings to his sacrifice, believes in his resurrection, possesses the Holy Spirit, and lives to do his work. The command, make disciples, means to teach or train people to follow and obey Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is part and parcel of the Great Commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth, to the ends of the earth. We are to be Christ's witnesses, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit that we listen to daily. Witnessing in our own cities, just like the disciples were commanded to do in Jerusalem. Witnessing in our own states and countries like the disciples did in Judea and Samaria. Witnessing anywhere else God sends us unto the ends of the earth. Today we continue to be ambassadors for Christ. We plead on his behalf to be reconciled to God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Not only did we, do we receive the gift of salvation by grace, we receive the gift of faith to believe in that grace, a gift worth fighting for. We see in Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In the Greek, to contend for literally means to struggle for appropriately. Also, Jesus' words in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, reveals to us the true heart of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He wants everyone to hear the good news. To drive the point home even further, we examine 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Great Commission compels us to share the good news until everyone is heard. Spread the gospel, y'all. It's called the Great Commission, not the Great Omission. Speak up and tell people about the good news. 
since we have received the power of the Holy Spirit, and if we listen to him, like a good servant, we should be about our Father's business until Christ returns. Don't be a Jonah. You all remember the story about Jonah. God said, go preach to Nineveh. Jonah said, "Uh uh-uh. God said, go preach to Nineveh. Jonah said, are you crazy? Those people are ugly, sinful people, and there are enemies. I'm not preaching to them. And he ran the other way. He hopped a freighter and sailed the other way. Who's going to win that battle? God, Jonah. God made the men of the freighter throw him overboard. God made a big fish swallow him and hold him for three days and three nights. And I'm sure Jonah was in that whale just saying, oh, Lord, just get me out of here. I'll do whatever you want. I'll, I'll preach to Nineveh. And that whale, after three days, spit him up on a shore. What shore was that? The shore of Nineveh. And God had a hand in that too. So Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh. It takes three days to walk through the city of Nineveh. It was a huge city. Jonah goes in there and starts preaching. Now, I'm, not sh- I'm, sure, I'm sure it wasn't a wholehearted preaching. I'm sure it wasn't a full-throated preaching. I'm sure he kind of did it begrudgingly, but in the one day he preached, they repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and they repented, and God saved that city. Did Jonah save that city? No. God saved that city. What did Jonah do? He sowed the seed. He broadcast the seed. That's all God wants you to do. You're not going to save anyone at all. You can't change anyone's heart. Only God can change someone's heart. Only God can save someone. You're going to sow the seed. That's all you do. And stand back and let God do his work. The God will change people's hearts. The Holy Spirit that is in us is God. And he is indestructible and faithful and eternal. However, Man himself is inferior, divisive, and deceitful. Without the Holy Spirit, man hungers for the flesh and the worldly pleasures. With the Holy Spirit, if he listens to him, he can become a true servant of Christ, bringing glory to God's name, helping our brothers in need, witnessing and evangelizing to the world, and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what it means to be a mature Christian. Have you died with Christ? Does Christ live in you? Do you live by faith? Again, I think Paul said it best in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're not living for Christ, if you have not died with Christ, in other words, if you haven't died to your old sinful self, if you're not living by faith in Christ who loved you and gave himself for you, then you're only living for yourself and you will die in your sin and you will spend eternity in the darkness devoid of God in a fiery lake of hell Turn and face 
the truth. Repent today and ask Jesus to be your Savior. An old-time evangelist used this illustration when I was a young man about a century ago. <laughs> he said, son, look at that oak tree out there. How does that oak tree stand for hundreds of years? How does it survive wind and storm and flood? That oak tree stands tall and firm because it has deep roots that no one can see on the surface, yet they're still there nonetheless. They feed it and nourish it and give the tree strength, just like the Holy Spirit in man. He is always with us. You may not see him, yet he is still there nonetheless. He feeds us and nourishes us and gives us strength. How do we witness for Christ, you might ask? How do, how do we have the strength to do so? How do we withstand storms and flood and wind and trials and tribulations? Deep roots. How did Paul withstand all the time he spent in, the jail, in jail for Christ? He had deep roots, didn't he? The Holy Spirit was with him. The Holy Spirit gave him strength and guided him daily. Paul was able to do all things that he was instructed to do because he had faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit guided him and he listened to him. Now, I'm not saying we should strive to be like Paul. We should strive to be like Christ, obviously. Yet the question still remains, do you have these deep roots that I'm talking about? Does the Holy Spirit nurture you and give you strength? And if he does, do you listen to his guidance? If you do, then you're ready to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, remembering that he is with you always to the ends of the age. You all do hear the Holy Spirit, don't you? He doesn't talk to you in an audible voice that you can hear with your ears. I'm not saying that. Yet you all know when he's tugging at your heart or tapping you on the shoulder all of a sudden or very slowly you have a desire in your mind and he's tugging at you to either do it or not do it. Listen to him. If you're a Christian, if you're a true Christian, a true disciple of Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit already. You should listen to him. The Holy Spirit is God guiding you. Trust him. He will guide you to make the right decision. The desires of your mind are either God or sin. The Holy Spirit will guide you to make those right decisions. The Holy Spirit tugs at you or, like I said, taps you on the shoulder or however you want to put it. You all know when he's talking to you. Listen to him. Maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe you, don't, maybe you have not died with Christ. Maybe you have not died to your old sinful self. If you're not living by faith in Christ who loved you and gave himself for you, I implore you at this moment, turn and face the truth. Turn and face the cross of Christ. Turn and face the Savior who loved you so much that he died a horrible death for you on the cross. Repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your Savior. 
I plead with you to do this today. Let us bow our heads, loved ones, in prayer. Father, holy and sacred is your name. We thank you for sending your Son to be our propitiation for sin, without which we would surely perish on our own. Help us never to forget that. Father, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to indwell us and guide us daily. May we listen to him. Your son Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in your name, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you have commanded us to do. Father, I, I pray for strength to do this. To those of us who know Christ here in this room and to those who are listening, help us be re-energized and start making disciples to effect a real change in this world. We know we cannot weather the storms of life on our own. We need your power and strength to face each and every one. To those who do not know the power of Christ in their life, I pray that you would turn away from your sin and repent and pray for forgiveness. I pray that you would ask the Holy Spirit to, for the Holy Spirit's power to strength and strength to weather this life storm, to help you patiently endure hard times. We pray that you would do this today. Father, we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand and join together in a closing hymn.